0: Okay, hey. welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, your host, Janine Uh First, I need to apologize. I made an error on our little advert. Um, it says it, this show is going to all be all about uh, the 76th anniversary of the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima, uh, and in the advert I put, today, August 5th, 2021, is the 75th, 76th anniversary, uh, it is not. Tomorrow, August 6th, is. so those of you who have followed this very closely, I apologize. What can I tell you? But I had, to, I had to issue that retraction. Everybody makes mistakes. So today, our big story does cover the 76th anniversary of Hiroshima. Now, this also coincides with the Olympics being held in Japan, in Tokyo, and the, this really starts with a report from, from Reuters, actually. As it turns out, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, uh, decided to mark this tragic anniversary of the 76th anniversary of Hiroshima uh, in the closing ceremonies, along with other tragic events, basically commemorating other tragic events besides Hiroshima. It was, it's all going to be done on August 8th instead of marking the the actual moment that the bomb was dropped 76 years ago on August 6th at 8.15 a.m., the IOC had decided that they weren't going to have a moment of silence. Um, The tone deafness of this decision did not escape me, all right? This looks and feels a lot like Hiroshima has become an inconvenient afterthought, which has to compete with other tragedies, including as well as the closing ceremonies themselves. So Reuters reported that, quote, Hiroshima Mayor Kazumi Matsui had sent a letter, uh, had sent a letter dated July 28th to IOC President Thomas Bach asking for a moment of silence to be observed, end quote. And here's a quote from the actual uh, letter itself. Quote, I'm hoping that athletes and games-related people will touch upon the reality of the atomic bombing in some way. I wonder if you could call on them to observe a moment of silence at 8.15 a.m. on August 6th at the Athletes' Village or wherever each of them is and participate in the Peace Memorial Ceremony to be held in Hiroshima on that day in their minds, end quote. And I understand what the mayor is saying. And keep in mind, the actual atomic bombing uh, by the U.S. on Hiroshima was August 6, 1945 at 8.15 a.m. And the bombing basically took this sizable city and reduced it to ashes. And it killed over 140,000 people, you know, as a result of that bombing. So the IOC chair, Thomas... uh, Name again the IOC chair Thomas Bach uh, did admit that he visited Hiroshima on July 16th which is a week before the Olympics opened in before the Olympics opening ceremony in Tokyo and quote later read at the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park cen- cenotaph um, end quote and then the IOC chair Thomas Bach called the games quote a, a beacon of hope for a peaceful future. But he didn't didn't once reconsider this very reasonable request uh, of the Hiroshima city officials and the Hiroshima uh, mayor. Instead, the Tokyo spoke, spokesperson um, for the Olympics, someone named Masa Takaya, sent, sent an email and the email said the following, quote, according to the IOC, since the Rio de Janeiro Games, a program to give our thoughts to those who lost their lives in grievous events in history and for other various reasons has been incorporated in the closing ceremony. I understand the IOC's policy is to share the thoughts of people in Hiroshima on that occasion, end quote. Wow. I, I don't know what they mean by, I mean, we can all figure what grievous events are, but I, but what do they mean by other various reasons? And then to incorporate all this in the closing ceremonies really means that these serious events are going to have to compete with each country celebrating their athletes' wins. I mean, to me, it would make more sense to do this at the beginning, not the tail end. And given the fact that Japan is hosting the Olympics, and they're doing so the summer olympics falls on this anniversary would it be so difficult for ioc chair mr bach would it be so difficult to ask all the athletes and managers and everyone else to observe a moment of silence at 8 15 a.m tomorrow i do not understand why that is so difficult so and key, oh one other thing Hiroshima, the memory of Hiroshima is going to be basically included in the closing ceremonies, but the closing ceremonies are on August 8th. Hiroshima was bombed on August 6th. So, you know, basically Hiroshima city officials weren't available to Reuters for comment. Um, But I wonder how Americans would feel if, for instance, we were hosting, uh, if the United States somewhere in the United States, we were hosting the Olympics again, and maybe the Olympics fell right in the middle, like, of 9-11. In other words, let's say we were hosting the Olympics in, I don't know, Dallas, or, no, let's say in, in New York, and, or somewhere else, and then basically, you know, the Olympics would, let's say they went from, say, September 1st through September 12th. Does um, that's the equivalent of telling us that we shouldn't have a moment of silence for 9/11, but that that'll be included in the closing ceremony days later. The insensitivity and tone deafness is disgusting. And but you know why are, I don't know why I'm surprised. I mean, as usual, white Europeans have minimized the pain of communities of color. So the response to by the IOC is just another slap in the face. Okay. But that's part of it, that's what Reuters reported. But the bigger story is the collective way this crime against humanity has been historically minimized and whitewashed. And unfortunately the public outside of Japan really doesn't still doesn't comprehend the crime against humanity that the bombings both at Hiroshima and Nagasaki represented. You know There's still far too many Americans that still believe the propaganda issued by the Truman administration, that, you know, the bombs had to be dropped in order to end the war quickly. But that's not, that wasn't the truth. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to set a lot of those lies to rest today. We're going to talk about the ravages of the Hiroshima bombing, and especially the role of the press in the aftermath, including the difference between embedded journalists or journalists- We're going to talk about the difference between embedded journalists, which are basically journalists approved of, sanctioned by the military, the difference between embedded journalists and, you know, actually honest ones, and how that difference really affects the systemic whitewashing against these types of crimes against humanity, and this specific one ordered by Harry Truman. We're also going to talk about the real reason for bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and especially Hiroshima, and it wasn't to end the war or save lives. Lies. Those were vicious lies. And it wasn't because Hiroshima was its military compound. That's not really true either. So finally, at the end of this, we're going to have our little mini-segment titled Environmental Zero- Heroes, Zeros, and Villains. And it's just going to be a few minutes, and we're going to talk about the bipartisan infrastructure deal and the fact that it is an environmental zero because it includes rewards for, guess what, big fossil fuel companies. So let's start. We've talked about the Reuters argument. So there's an article here, (coughs) excuse me, and it is from um, a publication. Let's see now. called The Conversation. And the conversation is really an incredibly interesting publication. It, it they basically blend academic uh, reporting with journalistic flair. Okay, they they do, and they're very good about uh, disclosing, you know, any possible conflicts of interest by the person writing the article. Nice for a change. Okay, so. Uh, this article, it's written by Associate Professor of Disaster and Emergency Management at York University, Canada, Jack L. Let me see this. Uh, Rosedilski. Okay. There is a disclosure statement. It says that Professor Dilski is a professor at York University. He does receive funding from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research as a co-investigator on a project supported under operating grant canadian 2019 novel coronavirus virus rapid research funding okay i just read that to you so this article the year old it was published august 6 2020 Um, and this is really talking about the growing dangers of nuclear annihilation that were just that's been discussed in this article and um you know the headline is it's been 75 years since hiroshima yet the threat of nuclear war persists. So he's writing about the 75th anniversary, which was last year. And it marks, you have to understand, the bombing at Hiroshima was the first, and according to Professor Dilsky, the only use of atomic weapons against cities, at least as far as we know. Uh, He mentions the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, and they talk about how it's documented in their in their publication that basically a civilization ending nuclear war, whether it was something that would occur by design or just a horrible miscommunication or somebody's really stupid blunder, um, is at the highest risk of happening since 1945. And this was in 2020. And... The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, they have what's called the doomsday clock, and it's just that, all right? They're trying to turn the doomsday clock back, whether it's on global warming or nuclear annihilation or whatever. And when it comes to nuclear annihilation, the doomsday clock is at 100 seconds to midnight. Once it's midnight, it's done. Everything's gone. So... You know, professor. This professor, he's a professor of disaster and emergency man- management. He has spent time at the site of the first atomic blast uh, and studied civil defense preparedness for survival during nuclear war. Um, and he's basically saying we're at a really low point because we have failed to reduce the risk of. Not only nuclear attacks, but the risk of an all-out nuclear war. Because nobody wins a nuclear war. That's the thing you have to understand. You know, it doesn't matter who starts it; if somebody else retaliates. Everything is destroyed, and what's left behind wouldn't want to continue living. So, uh, you know, this professor's talking about. There's uninformed decision making. There's mistakes. There's might be rational but really flawed choices that people make under pressure and this can result in that hair trigger reaction, you know, to send the bomb. And let's face it, this time last year, unfortunately, Donald Trump was still in office. And, you know, words basically uh communications leaked out that he wanted to just let nuke them. It's Like, why can we just why can't we just send a nuclear bomb? I mean, this is what Trump was inquiring into. We came very close because we had a madman in the White House. They make a mistake about it. Nuclear weapons are weapons of mass destruction, and they should be illegal, but that gene's left the bottle. Uh, You know, the first atomic bomb, though, wasn't dropped on Hiroshima. It was tested at the Trinity, Trinity test site in the New Mexico desert, and to show you, you know, the press lied to the public, all right? Um, they had to, you know, cover this up. So there was an early morning blast, and 21 days after the successful test blast at the Trinity test site, the decision was made to drop the bomb on Hiroshima and then Nagasaki. Okay? So... And they saw that this capability of this bomb to just really flatten a city, an entire city, is beyond belief. And you know, basically, this author said that this uh, this new bomb was an quote an unparalleled weapon representing represented the capability of humankind to inflict suffering onto others. End quote. It is a weapon of mass destruction the Federation of American Scientists reported also, according to this article, on the global status of nuclear weapons in 2020. And what they they reported is that basically um, nine nations possess, get this, 13,410 nuclear warheads. And it's believed that Approximately 1,800 nuclear weapons are already on high alert for immediate use. Those numbers should terrify you. That's essentially more than enough to wipe out practically all life on Earth as we know it. Plant, animal, us, you name it. And these weapons, they're around us. And we're just told to just ignore it. And let's face it, we came close in 2017. North Korea was developing their own nuclear weapons, again, more so, and this was as documented by UCUSA.org, and the situation was made worse because Donald Trump was basically issuing threats, according as documented by the New York Times, that were, you know, reckless, stupid, and childish. And of course, though, the North Korean leader isn't much more mature, so we came dangerously close. Now, there are, we talk, this article also talks about civil defense because, you know, this is all about nuclear everything. And um, these scientists are basically saying that we're way behind, okay? You know, in the 1950s, you can laugh about the duck and cover stories, but at least they had something. We haven't done anything. And to protect the public, um, you know, Homeland Security's done very little to nothing in terms of civil defense plans, except maybe, I don't know, make sure they have enough body guides? I mean, I really don't know. Um, But in the late 1960s, uh, because this professor's Canadian, he said that the Canadians had this 11 steps to survival guide, and it was civil defense from nuclear attack. and it provided that, you know, basically if a nuclear attack occurred without warning, um, it would provide the following pertinent information to the, you know, to the people about an imminent threat. It would provide information on shelter-in-place or evacuation options. It would have plans tailored to a given community's needs, whatever that means, and that they would be able to convey the risk without, you know, terrifying people too much. But, you know, again, if you're being told that there's an imminent nuclear attack, who wouldn't panic? Um, So then they have a quote from uh, basically a FEMA specialist, a man named Wayne Blanchard, in 1986, who asked, quote, Civil defense measures can make a difference of tens of millions of lives saved in a nuclear attack. How, then, does one reconcile this with the fact that as of 1984, the U.S. is only a rudimentary civil defense system, end quote. And these, this particular professor said that today, our civil defense efforts are just as basic to non existent And he quotes basically a FEMA fact sheet from 2018. The title is, quote, Be Prepared for a Nuclear Explosion. Okay. And says that it's, it really just raises more questions, you know, and he talks about how in the 1950s, the United States Federal Civil Defense Administration did have this public information campaign with survival advice, but, you know, it was silliness, you know, this idea, duck and cover. What are you going to do, hide under your desk? Your desk is going to protect you from a nuclear blast? So that's what they have. Um, And so they go out to talk about you know, preparedness plans, even if you have some, they're really futile, because those that are close within the proximity of an atomic blast, they're not going to live anyway. They're either going to die immediately or months afterwards from the effects of severe burns, radiation sickness, whatever. And so, you know, they basically said, uh, quote, any reoccurring Hiroshima-like atomic bombings elsewhere would be bleak. Mass death would prevail, end quote. I'll repeat that again. Quote, any reoccurring Hiroshima-like atomic bombings elsewhere would be bleak. Mass death would prevail. And then basically this particular scientist, Rosin ended his article saying, quote, our only way out of this problem is to work towards abolishing them, end quote, in other words, abolishing nuclear weapons altogether. Now I have another article, and this is by um, Professor Ham Dallas, who is at the University of Georgia, uh, professor, Department of Health Policy and Management. Uh, Professor Dallas has received funding from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services through the State of Georgia Division of Public Health, Georgia Emergency Preparedness, um, U.S. Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. It goes on and on and on, okay? You can check it out yourself. Um, And again, this is from 2020. You know, 75th anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And this professor, Dallas is saying, you know, we'd like to think that the threat from nuclear weapons has been, you know, pretty much reduced. But he said no, that there are clear signs of a quote growing nuclear arms race, and that's as documented by BBC.com. And he also went on to say in 2020 that here in the United States, we're not really prepared for any nuclear or radiological event. And he goes on to say, quote, I've been studying the effects of nuclear events from detonations to accidents for over 30 years. Huh? This has included my direct involvement in research, teaching, and humanitarian efforts in multiple expeditions to Chernobyl and Fukushima contaminated areas. Now I am involved in the proposal for the the formation of a nuclear global health workforce, which I proposed in 2017. Such a group could bring together nuclear and non-nuclear technical and health professionals for education and training and help to meet the preparedness, coordination, collaboration, and staffing requirements necessary to respond to a large-scale nuclear crisis, end quote. This sounds great, but my question is, well, really, comment. We wouldn't need a nuclear global health workforce if everyone just got rid of their nuclear devices for both energy and war. And... You know, this idea that you're going to have enough staffing for a large-scale nuclear crisis. My comment is, really? I mean, does Professor Dallas really seriously believe anyone would survive or would want to survive? You know, why is Professor Dallas trying to make this sound like a normal weapon of war? It isn't. It just isn't. It's a weapon of cowards. So, you know, once again... Professor Dallas goes on, you know, he asks the question, what happens when a nuclear device is detonated over a city? And he gives some answers. Uh, Again, as documented by AtomicArchive.com, he documented that approximately 135,000 people died at Hiroshima and and about 64,000 people died in Nagasaki and that the majority of the deaths happened in the first days after the bombing. And most of the people died from, as I said before, thermal burns, which are very bad, or physical injuries or radiation poisoning. And frankly, most of the doctors and nurses in Hiroshima were either killed or severely injured themselves, so they couldn't really help. And part of the problem was that, like a lot of American cities, their medical personnel and facilities, in other words, hospitals and doctors and nurses were concentrated in the urban areas, all clustered together. And this is something that probably isn't the smartest thing, and we have the same thing here in, in the United States, and it's really a chilling reminder of how difficult it would be to respond medically to nuclear events. And he asked the question, what if a nuclear device were detonated in an urban area today? And he went on to explain that uh, he explored this particular question in 07. He, um, he, did, he conducted a 2007 study which modeled a nuclear weapon attack on four American cities. And he concluded that, just like in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, quote, the majority of deaths would happen soon after the detonation, and the local health care response capability would be largely eradicated, end quote. And so other models show pretty much the same thing. And he goes on to say also that our present healthcare system is very inexperienced in terms of treating radiation victims. Um, he explains that thermal burns take a lot of resources to treat even one one patient with thermal burns, and um, it would also it just it, the medical system would be overloaded, kind of like we are with COVID now, right? Um, he goes on to say, what about getting, you know, what would happen in terms of trying to get people out of the blast and radiation contamination zone? So, bomb dropped in a major city. Um, evacuation or sheltering in place has to be considered. He documents how just a few weeks after the their Chernobyl disaster, over 116,000 people were evacuated. That's according to worldnuclear.org. And that was mainly from the most contaminated areas in Ukraine and Belarus. And he went on to explain that another 220,000 people were relocated a few years later. He goes on to explain how after Fukushima, the earthquake and tsunami, over 200,000 people were evacuated from areas within 20 kilometers, which is for Americans is 12 miles, of the nuclear plant. And that was because of fear of radiation exposure, as if winds contaminate, as if winds discriminate, right? Winds go further than 12 miles. Um, he goes on to explain that the evacuations in Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Japan were botched. They were screwed up. And a lot of the problems that the, these evacuation um, attempts, in Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Japan were plagued by the following problems. One, misinformation. Two, inadequate and confusing orders. Three, delays in releasing information. Four, there was also trouble evacuating everyone from the affected areas. Five, elderly and infirmed residents were left in areas near radioactive contamination. Six, many others, moved unnecessarily from uncontaminated areas which resulted in deaths from winter conditions okay so all these problems led to a loss of public trust in the government but um and then this professor dallas goes on to make these claims that um, the actual area where there are dangerous levels of radioactive fallout is is a fraction of the total area around the detonation zone which he can make that argument and maybe the numbers look like that but the fact is this even a fraction is enough to trigger cancer in a lot of people so to me this almost looks like an apologist stance i'm not going to read any more of it i'm just not um well i'll read a little more basically um Apparently, there's this group called the Radiation Effects Research Foundation, and they've been tracking the health effects of radiation for decades. Um, And they said about approximately 1,900 excess cancer deaths could be attributed to atomic bombs. Um, They've also pointed out that Japan has some really detailed cancer screenings after Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and then Fukushima. Keep in mind, Fukushima wasn't a military attack. It was due to the incompetence of TEPCO that just they didn't properly maintain their equipment. That's all. I did an entire article, an entire investigation on it, so which actually ran in Eurasia Review, the, the now-defunct UK Progressive, and several others. So I'm not even going to listen to this. Is there a risk of another military attack against civilian centers like Hiroshima and Nagasaki? It's a good question. In my opinion, of course. Of course, all over the world, we see military, military might, including from the United States, going in and taking over countries and attacking. And then we say that we're going to help the people, you know, in Iraq, for instance. But I don't know how bombing their cities helps them, frankly. Uh, and obviously I'm being very sarcastic, but we're going to move on. So that's some of the facts there. Now we're going to talk about why journalism is so important and must remain painfully truthful. You know, there was a massive propaganda machine that gave excuses to why dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki had to happen. And there were journalists that helped push that. There were also journalists who worked to undo the damage of propaganda That was written, ironically, by a Pulitzer winner, but sponsored by the Pentagon. This has to do with, again, the idea of journalists embedding with the military. Okay? I'm just going to come out and say it in my opinion. It's just my opinion. No legitimate journalist would embed with the military. Because there's no way that they're going to let you write what you need to write. They're not going to let you write the whole truth. They're going to pull that national security crap. And the fact is, journalists must remain, especially covering warrants, they must remain independent of the military. And if the Joint Chiefs don't like it, tough. So let's go on, all right? So there's this piece, uh, and it's written by Professor Christopher B. Daly, who's a professor of journalism at Boston University. And this is in the conversation. And... um, know, I think it's a conversation. Yeah. And this was written um, a few years ago, August 6, 2015. So each one of these are anniversaries of the bombing. This was in 2015. It was updated last year in 2020. The headline is how American journalists covered the first use of the atomic bomb. So Professor Daly really goes to town on this. He asked the question, all right, there was this big Manhattan project. How was it possible to keep all this all the, all this information secret? And then, how did American journalists break the news? Well, he goes into it. First of all, from New York to Oak Ridge, apparently in, in April nineteen forty five, General Leslie Groves from the U.S. Army uh, spoke with the managing editor of the New York Times, and um, the general wanted to borrow the time, the science writer for the Times at the time, a science journalist by the name of William Lawrence. But he wanted to borrow Mr. Lawrence for the remainder of the war, April 1945. Okay, and Professor, um, I'm sorry, folks. Professor Daly has done quite a bit of research on the history of journalism. He has a book called Covering America, and Professor Daly really believes that this was a critical step in informing the public and shaping the information, massaging it, if you will, you know, in other words, getting close to propaganda. So the general wanted to borrow Times right science writer William Lawrence for the remainder of the war. So Lawrence headed off. He went to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and there General groves showed him everything. Introduce him to the Manhattan Project. <clears throat> Translation, the Army wanted a journalist embedded with. Them. Always a bad idea. They said they wanted a civilian on board who could, quote, help with drafting press releases, writing news stories, and explaining the vast and complex undertaking to the general public, end quote. And they picked Lawrence. I mean, Lawrence, um, he had immigrated to the United States as a teen. He attended Harvard and Boston University. He had Apparently, this Mr. Lawrence had really pioneered the the idea of science journalism in a general newspaper, and he won the Pulitzer in 1936. Now he's attached to the Manhattan Project, and he had carte blanche. He was allowed to travel to a whole assortment of bomb-making sites all throughout the United States. He was able to interview the top scientists and engineers. And this quote is really scary quote. And he soon knew more about the project than all but a handful of thousands of people working on it." End quote. Now, I know there's an issue of national security, but he had a moral duty when he wrote his articles afterwards to tell the full truth, not cover it up. So then in July, Lawrence went to this site near Alamogordo in the New Mexico desert. He witnessed the first test explosion of the A-bomb, That's the codename Trinity. We talked about that, except there's nothing Christian about this. Lawrence was the one who wrote that first false press release that the Army used to concoct the cover story. apparently there were some civilians in areas near there. They saw this big flash on July 15th, and this cover story was, nothing to worry about, folks, just an old ammunition dump that had blown up. Sure, because ammunition dumps always blow up and form mushroom clouds. You know, that's as stupid as saying Donald Trump was a Rhodes Scholar, really. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the Army was exposing everyone in the area and in surrounding states to the first dose of airborne radiation. They played with our lives. So this was a New York Times exclusive. So the Army was showing gratitude. And the Army basically tipped off the top management of the time on August 2nd, you know, about the fact they were about to drop the bomb on August 6th. So the paper could, you know, scoop all the other papers. You know, so the New York Times traded and sold their souls to scoop other papers as our government unnecessarily prepared to commit a crime against humanity. So on August 6, 1945, we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Three days later, the Army Air Corps struck again, and we dropped the bomb at Nagasaki. Keep in mind, journalist Lawrence, and I'll use the term journalist loosely after this, um, he was on board one of the aircraft on August 9th. He was the official journalistic witness to the Manhattan Project. He was also the first American civilian to witness the use of this, this horrible weapon. He detailed what, they, what professor, this professor called a poetic narrative, which appeared in the Times a month later, and but it just began very benignly quote we are on our way to bomb the mainland of japan end quote and then as they're en route to their target lawrence is kind of uh, kind of you know entertaining in print the morality of setting out to wipe an entire city off the map you know he uh, supposedly lawrence asked himself if he felt pity for the quote poor devils who are about to be murdered by the bomb and his answer was, not when, quote, not when one thinks of Pearl Harbor and of the death march on Bataan, end quote. So basically, you know, he figured the Japs deserved it. Then over Nagasaki, um, Lawrence and the crew got to witness the, what's called the existential chaos unleashed by this. Quote, awestruck, we watched it shoot upward like a meteor coming from the earth instead of from outer space, becoming ever more alive as it climbed skyward through the white clouds. It was no longer smoke or dust or even a cloud of fire. It was a living thing, a new species of being born right before our incredulous eyes. And he goes on and on and on. Um, I'll continue. At one stage of its evolution, covering millions of years in terms of seconds, the entity assumed the form of a giant square totem pole with its base about three miles long, tapering off to about a mile at the top. Its bottom was brown. Its center was amber. Its top, white. But it was a living totem pole carved with many grotesque masks, grimacing at the earth. It kept struggling in an elemental fury like a creature in the act of breaking the bonds that held it down. In a few seconds, it had freed itself from its gigantic stem and floated upward with tremendous speed, its momentum carrying into the stratosphere to a height of about 60,000 feet. As the mushroom floated off into the blue, it changed its shape into a flower-like form, its giant petal curving downwards, creamy white outside, rose-colored inside, it still retained a shape when we last gazed at it from a distance of about 200 miles, end quote. I don't know what this guy was thinking, okay, seriously. But journalist Lawrence, he's like awestruck about this. And, you know, it's obvious he believed the lies coming from not just the Pentagon, the lies coming from the Truman administration, Um, And then the following weeks after that, he did a series uh, uh, basically on the same theme. Um, They were Pulitzer Prize-winning articles. He explained to just the mostly civilian audience the basic principles of atomic energy. But finally, he got criticized in recent years, okay? There were journalists that believed that Lawrence was compromised as a reporter, quote, because of his attachment to the military, end quote. And and these criticisms are justified, in my opinion. There, there's no such thing as true journalism. When a journalist is embedded with the military, you're not free to record the full truth. If anything, I, maybe Lawrence believed what he was writing. Maybe he, had, he bought the propaganda, but he was also helping to sell it. And just when I read this, this detailed explanation of the bomb, almost poet, poet-like, okay, Lawrence was also faulted for downplaying the effects of radiation. And some, um, some journalists were so angry, again, as documented by Democracy Now! in 2005, um, some, you know, like Amy Goodman from Democracy Now!, some are demanding that the times return the Pulitzer Prize awarded to Lawrence in 1946, and I agree. Even though he's long gone, that's not the point. So keep in mind, journalism is supposed to be the fourth estate. We are supposed to hold these people in power accountable and make sure things are transparent and tell the truth and explain it to people. We are not supposed to be a propaganda arm, ever. In all fairness, uh, this professor from Boston U. saying, well, there were some limits to Lawrence's perspective. You know, he was seeing experience from the point of view of the attackers. That's nice. I don't buy it, okay? And he really didn't see the human agonies on the ground. I would argue that any person, much less experienced journalist, could understand the agony this weapon of mass destruction caused, especially when dropped on a civilian target. It takes a special kind of cowardice to attack civilians, including children, with a weapon of mass destruction. Keep in mind, there were no Allied journalists on the ground in Japan at the time of the bombing. Okay? Finally, there was reporting from the ground, and this is important. Uh, One of the first was a reporter from the New York Herald Tribune, a man named Homer Biggert. He went with a group of journalists to Hiroshima in September of 1945, and he was trying to kind of write something that would justify or rationalize the massive loss of life. And then he went on to describe the ruins. And he started about three miles from the center of the blast. Biggert reported seeing, you know, what you would see in cities in Europe that have been destroyed, um, to quote Biggert, but across the river, there was only flat, appalling desolation, the starkness accentuated by bare blackened tree trunks and the occasional shell of a reinforced concrete building, end quote. And he reported people were still dying at about 100 a day. Um, he did hint at what eventually became known as radiation sickness. But the real journalist came along, a man named John Hersey, and he was from the New Yorker magazine, and he came and visited Japan A year later and he stayed longer than Baker had been allowed to and John Hersey is considered to have created one of the masterpieces of war correspondence Um, I don't know if it should be considered a masterpiece I think that the necessity for war correspondence only speaks to our collective moral bankruptcy but that's another story so Hersey followed the experiences of six individuals who had been present in Hiroshima on the morning the bomb exploded. And then he went moment by moment, scene by scene. He recreated their thoughts and their actions of each one of these survivors, beginning from minutes before the blast through the first days and weeks. His reporting was finished in August of 1946. His editor at the New Yorker was a man named Harold Ross. He got a look at things, and he devoted the entire issue to Hersey's account, but he didn't get rid of contrary to mythology, he didn't get rid of the advertisements though. Okay, um, so basically, you know, Hersey's really important piece was right in the middle of all these ads. So his here he had this somber, the somber piece of journalistic craft that was quote that quote appears quote, disconcertingly alongside ads for permalift bras and the latest hilarity from S.J. Perelman, as well as full-page as well as full spreads, offering civilian versions of such familiar items as the Willie's Jeep, end quote. I don't know what the Willie's Jeep is. But his story really documented the, the suffering. Um, and it should be mentioned, too, that He didn't say anything using his own voice. There was no pontificating, no summarizing. He let the people story speak for itself. And afterwards, it was published as a book. The title was simply Hiroshima. It became a bestseller. It's still in print. And many consider it one of the greatest works of journalism by an American. And this piece was also in the conversation. So... American journalistic coverage was contradictory between those in bed with the military and those who sought the truth. In Great Britain, the coverage was a bit more consistent. Um, This was a piece written by um, Professor Tim Luckhurst of Durham University in the UK. I'm just going to go through this quickly. Um, You know, basically, he talked about how in August... um, there were thousands of British sailors and, and airmen and so others, and people in the army that were still in the middle of battles against Japanese imperial forces. Um, those that had fought in the European land war expected to be sent to Japan to assist in that endeavor. Um, so, you know, again, they're representing, I mean, the Japanese were forceful, but once again, this particular reporting kind of contradicts what the Joint Chiefs had to say about Japan in the end days uh, before the bomb was dropped, and that was they were essentially defeated. Okay, but all of these different people are saying, "Oh no, they were. There was bitter fighting still. There were pockets. Um, you know, it, it, it's they also." that there was a Times correspondent in Washington, D.C., who explained that that one of the justifications for dropping the bomb on Hiroshima was that there was still Japanese resistance, okay? Um, To quote this, quote, until early June, the president and military leaders were in agreement that this weapon should not be used, but those responsible came to the conclusion they were justified in using any and all means to bring the war in the Pacific to a close within the shortest possible time, end quote. Except that's not the truth. When I said the British reporting was consistent, that included consistent lies, consistent propaganda. Every single Joint Chief, including Eisenhower, remained adamant in their judgment this weapon of mass destruction was not necessary. The Japanese were beaten. They were days from surrender. They just wanted a way to have their emperor surrender and, and base, with some dignity. That's all it was. Okay. So once again, um, this is something that was just beyond belief. I, I'm going to just skip ahead here. So let's talk about the fact of what happened when the bomb was dropped. There's another story um, from the Open University, Elizabeth Chappell. This is, again, from The Conversation. She's a Ph.D. candidate. This was written in 2019, so I'm assuming she got her Ph.D. The headline was, They Died With Stones In Their Mouths. Hiroshima's Last Survivors Tell Their Story. And so this was a story of um, how this one author, a man named Robert Junk, had interviewed some orphans for his book that he was planning. And the book was entitled Children of the Ashes, appropriate that you can find on Amazon. And he spoke to some of these, these people that are now adults, um, you know, their memories of when they were children. And they call it their habakusha story. I, I know I'm pronouncing it horribly. Um, and he said they would often begin with this line, this is my habakusha story, Okay. And then they would talk about their personal experiences. You know, a lot of these children were, um, they had been evacuated, uh, but they were, they were made orphans, all right? There was a black market that sprang up where local women um, set up stalls to try and feed orphan children, older children, bully younger children. Um, the smaller ones were only able to survive by trying to find any, any little scrap of food they could. Um, and according to this one man, his name is Shoso, his memory was that towards the end of 1945, he saw many children die of starvation, and this one line just hit me hard. Um, He said, quote, Some were so hungry they died with stones in their mouths. That's hideous. So, again, uh, Shoso, okay, is one of the survivors. Um, He had two sisters and three brothers. Um, His mother, and basically he had been evacuated to Miyoshi, which is a neighboring town. And um, when he was in the fields working on August 6, 1945, he saw this white cloud rising in the city over Hiroshima, but he didn't know what had happened. And his older sister caught up with him. But it's this one quote that is just so... So vile, you know, where he just said towards the end of 1945, after these bombs were dropped, you know, just starving children, and he said, "quote I'm going to say it again, quote Some were so hungry, they died with stones in their mouths." I don't see how you can justify this. All right, so we're going to move ahead here now. You know there's still a lot of people that will claim that it was necessary to drop the bomb, the Japanese were never going to surrender, so on and so forth, and this is what President Truman pushed. But was there any truth to it? Turns out there wasn't. Now, there's a couple of different articles, and what we found by... Um, basically, what we found very simply was this. The conventional wisdom, especially in the U.S., was that... Um, We had to drop the bomb on first on Hiroshima and then three days later on Nagasaki to end the war and save lives. And a lot of Americans still believe that nonsense. But there's been a lot of scholarly research using primary sources from the time that show it wasn't true. Okay? By the time the bomb was ready, Japan was ready to surrender. In fact, then General Dwight Eisenhower was quoted as saying the following, quote, Japan was at that very moment seeking some way to surrender with minimum loss of face. It was not necessary to hit them with that awful thing, end quote. Now, there are those that will claim, well, the Death March of the Tams and other atrocities committed by the Japanese military. And while that's true, keep in mind, Hiroshima, one of the other lives was that Hiroshima was this military target. It wasn't. That's not true. Basically, Hiroshima, while it was the, um, what is it? It was home to the Japanese Second Army headquarters. Headquarters, not the army itself. But it was mainly just a big city with an enormous civilian population. Of the 200,000 deaths in, in Hiroshima, so it was more than we previously thought, only approximately 10,000 of them were military personnel. Everyone else was a civilian. In terms of Nagasaki, Nagasaki had no military units. And of the, uh, apparently these estimates are bigger, of the 140,000 deaths there, only about 150 were military personnel. So over 95% of the combined casualties between Hiroshima and Nagasaki were civilian. Hiroshima was not a military center. It was not necessary to hit it. So why did we? Okay, we're going to get into that in a little bit. There's also the claim that our government dropped leaflets in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, warning people what was going to happen and and basically urging them to evacuate. That's another lie. The evidence shows the decision was at the highest level coming from the president that they weren't going to give any any prior warning. In fact, now it is true, leaflets were dropped on Japanese cities, but they were dropped after the bomb, after the atomic bombings. And those leaflets warned that any further resistance would be useless. Okay? So those two lies were right there. So why bomb these two cities? It was not militarily necessary. Well, they had other reasons. We're going to get into that. Okay. First of all, we have to look at the fact that the alliance, the Allied Powers Alliance, is going to be breaking up soon. And even though Russia was our ally, Russia was already eyeing a way to expand. And the United States and Russia have competing economic systems. Russia was heavily communist, and we've always been capitalist. And they were looking to see who was going to be the big dog on the block, period. This was a show of power, brutal, cruel, cowardly power. And it was meant to intimidate the Russians and everyone else. That is the only real reason why Harry Truman decided against the advice of every single one of his Joint Chiefs to drop the atomic bomb. Period. Okay? That's it. It has nothing to do with anything else. Uh, To go on further... Um, they wanted to, why did they pick then Hiroshima? Okay. Well, the U.S. was using the bombing of Hiroshima as a nuclear test as well. They wanted to see how these weapons would affect nuclear, how it would affect human beings, how quickly it would kill, and they also wanted to determine the impact on buildings and other materials. And that really implies the military was most likely already considering neutron bombs that kill all life but leave the building and infrastructure standing still, ready to steal. Okay, And we know that they, the U.S. monitored the impact of radiation on humans after they dropped the bomb. And part of it's because they dropped two different kinds of bombs. One was uranium and one was plutonium and in different physical settings so they could see a variety of effects that could be tested. Make no mistake about it. The bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were militarily unnecessary, and they were crimes against humanity. NPR reports a little more, you know, why did the U.S. choose Hiroshima? Again, there were people asking a question, what would happen if we dropped this on a city of a certain size? And they were looking at the physical characteristics of Hiroshima. And this is based on information from a committee that was declassified years ago. All right, and the committee decided that um, that this would be the not only have the most impact physically, but it would have psychological objectives too. Not only for the Japanese, but for any other power in the in the world, really. So there were two psychological objectives surrounding the first atomic bombing. One, obviously, to scare the Japanese into unconditional surrender. But two, also to, quote, impress upon the world the power of this new weapon. This is from NPR.com, and it was written in 2015 by Jeff Brumfield. Okay, didn't want to leave that out. Um, basically, the actions of cowardly bullies, that like worthy of the Gestapo. Okay, I'm not calling the Joint Chiefs Gestapo. I'm calling Harry Truman one. The bomb was still top secret, um, and the, the second goal was that how do I put this? Okay, the researchers chose a top ta- chose a target um, that would be really how do I put this. All right, let me backtrack. The atomic bomb still top secret, but what the scientists knew was that, that within a few years, they expected to have what they called a super bomb then, which is a hydrogen or therm- thermonuclear bomb. And at the time, they believed that an H-bomb on top of a missile could destroy the world. Um, physicist Edward Teller wasn't on this committee. But he wrote a letter that really described the anxiety of the bomb builders. Quote, our only hope in getting the facts of our results before the people. I'm sorry, quote, our only hope is in getting the facts of our results before the people. This might help to convince everybody that the next war would be fatal. For this purpose, actual combat use might even be the best thing. End quote. So the target committee decided the A-bomb had to kill. All right, so they didn't use the H-bomb. They used the A-bomb. Okay? And, you know, once again, um, this is why they did it. So there was no military justification for the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was based on lies. That President Harry Truman decided that he wanted to be the big dog on the block. And I just want to emphasize the fact that here at Progressive News Network, yes, I will attack a Democrat doing the wrong thing as much as I will a Republican. Fair is fair. So this anniversary tomorrow, the 76th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima, you can see why the chair of the IOC, his response is, not just tone-deaf, it is insensitive as hell, to make everybody wait until days after the anniversary of this horrible event, he was too too chintzy, too, what's the word, too cruel to say, look, we want, we want to sponsor a moment of silence in the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. Why is that so difficult? It's not. And the media has has barely touched upon this. I'm sure there will be stories tomorrow all about it. But where were they before? Well, they were too busy, you know, talking about other stuff in the Olympics. That's what we have for today. Now our next segment. Environmental heroes, zeros, and villains. Okay. I like doing that. So we have this report from The Intercept, written by Aileen Brown, and it was published ah, just a few days ago. And the headline is, Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill Includes $25 Billion in Potential New Subsidies for Fossil Fuels. Okay. Quote, instead of reducing the role of fossil fuels in the economy, critics say the bill subsidizes industry greenwashing, end quote. And she's right. So... Apparently, um, this latest draft bill would allow fossil fuel companies to be eligible for at least $25 billion in new subsidies. And that's according to an analysis by the Center for International Environmental Law. Now, we did a show on this a couple of weeks ago about the fact that the fossil fuel industry keeps receiving these subsidies from the American taxpayer. They've received them for 90 years. They don't deserve it, but they do. And it's those very subsidies that make basically truly renewable energy like solar and wind more expensive for the average person. Now, this bipartisan infrastructure bill, I knew this bill was garbage to start with because we also outed about a month ago about the fact that this bipartisan infrastructure bill has built into it a pay-for, which is just privatization. And they use three things. One, one thing's called asset recycling. The other is public-private partnerships. The other one, I think, is private bonds. Those are all three euphemisms for privatizing public infrastructure. Roads, bridges, our water, our waterworks, our energy grid. You know, You want to see an instance of privatization of the energy grid, you don't have to look any further than Texas. When their power grid collapsed last winter because of an unexpected uh, freeze, it collapsed because the privatizers there in Texas failed to do any of the necessary routine maintenance to keep it going. And since it's privatized, they weren't forced to do it. There was no accountability. So we've talked about this. Now we have this instance where this bipartisan infrastructure bill being hailed by the president, as well as the Republicans, has at least $25 billion, with a B, in new subsidies to to the fossil fuel industry. To me, that's that's not just an environmental zero. That's an environmental villain. And I blame the entire bipartisan infrastructure committee every single one of them, dem and Republican alike. We expect this from Republicans because the Republican Party only cares about the rich. No mystery there. But the Democrats, for too long, corporate Democrats, centrists, blue dogs, whatever you want to call them, they have taken money from the same corporations the Republicans do. And they'll argue and say, we're not as bad as the GOP. You know, we didn't attack the Capitol, and that's true. But we're being, we're being told to vote less over the two evils. We're being asked to pick our abuser. The Dems play good cop, and by Dems I mean blue Dog centrist, corporate. They play good cop to the Republicans' Nazi cop. But the fact is we keep losing out. And there is no damn good reason for the fossil fuel industry, which is private private industry, for them to receive any, Subsidy from the taxpayer at all not only do do these big companies not really pay their fair share in taxes now They're going to take our tax dollars To subsidize a product that they jack the price way up and is basically in terms of global warming the major contributor to destroying this planet Talk about a perfect storm for corruption so I would say this time around that not only the fossil fuel industry, but the bipartisan infrastructure committee, every member on it, are today declared to be environmental villains. Okay, a little melodramatic, but you get the drift here, okay? I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but this is what we're talking about here. And um, this was also outed by Jim Walsh, who is Food and Water Watch's senior policy analyst. To quote Walsh, this is billions upon billions of dollars in additional fossil fuel industry subsidies, in addition to the $15 billion that we already hand out to this industry to support and fund this industry. Okay? Walsh goes on to say, we will never be able to meet the Paris Agreement if we fund these kind of programs, end quote. All right? And scientists have been quoted, according to Inside Climate News, and in order to meet the goals of the Paris Accord, the US would have to reach net zero emissions by 2015. I'm sorry, by 2050. And we have to actually be well progressed towards that goal by 2030. But that's what Walsh is saying with if we keep giving subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, we will never be able to meet the Paris Agreement if we fund these kind of programs. Okay? And so... You know, we go on. Um, Walsh goes on to say, to basically talk about that these subsidies really become entrenched even more so, and it's really the creation of a new kind of new fossil fuel infrastructure. Like this, it's the fossil fuel infrastructure has morphed into this giant Uber monster. And to quote Walsh, this would support the development of four petrochemical hubs that would create profit incentives for greenhouse gas emission production and would be focused on finding new ways of integrating fossil fuels into our economy for transportation, energy, petrochemical development, and plastics. And then, end quote. And then he added, quote, This deal envisions a world where we will use fossil fuel into perpetuity. End quote. Think about that. We could go on some more, but it's been a long week think about that we will be covering this issue more in depth on another show. Um, you know once again, I hope uh, we welcome you and I want you to keep tuning in because we're going to keep covering these issues of environmental injustice. you know the crime against humanity that we call simply Hiroshima and Nagasaki is not just a crime against humanity it's a crime it's a crime against the planet and it is environmental evil. And then we have our environmental villain of the week. And we're going to keep pushing it, and I'll just end with, again, Mr. Walsh from Food and Water Watch, who succinctly explains what this bipartisan infrastructure committee has done, the crime they've committed against all of us, so they can hold on to their big corporate donations. Quote, when he says, this deal envisions a world where we we will use fossil fuels into perpetuity, end quote. And Lord help us, because then we won't have a habitable planet for our children and grandchildren. And that's what we have to consider now. So with that, I say good night and God bless.